hello and welcome to the Back to the Pavilion podcast, where we find out what players who used to wield the willow and leather are up to now, and their stories about how they got to where they are today. Some of my guests have led long, illustrious careers, even playing for their countries. Others may have only had short domestic careers, but it doesn't make their stories any less fascinating. Today we talk to a player who played for four counties in his 15-year career, along with his country in 34 ODIs and just one test match. His big hitting and slow left arm bowling making him an excellent short form player. For me, it's a real shame he didn't get to represent England in T20 cricket. Since then, he's climbed the umpiring ladder. So join me as we welcome Ian Blackwell back to the pavilion. My mind has sort of been made up. By, uh, it was a third shoulder operation for me. And even before I had any uh, issues with the shoulder for the third time, I was still looking at you know, things to do outside of cricket, um, or obviously still within cricket. So I was exploring the umpiring and coaching routes. I did my level three coaching badge. I think that was 2007. Um, just because I knew I could tick it off, put a string to my bow, gives me an option if I wanted to, to go into coaching. Um, I have done coaching. It's not for me. Um, I'll help out players and, you know, anyone that wants any advice or, Think so they can learn anything from me, which you know, obviously, I don't necessarily think that I'm the best man for the job. But um, you know, anyone who wants to listen and chat cricket, I'm more than happy to. Um, <clears throat> and then I went into, I think, I got left out of the uh, Durham T20 side. Uh, it was when they played a block in the middle of the summer, um, so basically I had five weeks of of not doing an awful lot. So for me, it was an ideal chance to then. Um, you know, do some umpiring. I did some Northeast Premier League games and Division One and Two and even Three. So, you know, just to get some experience and to also show Chris Kelly that I was keen at, at umpiring and say that I've actually done some some games. Um, and then it went from there, really. So, 2012, I had my contract ripped up basically by Durham because I would have been missing for the whole of 2013. Um, and um, yeah, I think if you injured for more than 16 week period, they can terminate your contract. So even though I had a year left, they uh, decided that obviously after that, the club needed to save some money anyway, uh, with the situation that was going on. Um, and quite a, quite a lot of us sort of left at, at that period. I mean, you finished up on loan at Warwickshire. Was that ever a, was that just a stopgap for them and for you? Or was there ever a chance that they were going to offer you something the year after? No, I spoke to Gilo. Basically, I didn't really want to go. Um, right. I wanted to obviously fight for my place at Durham, but that coincided with Paul Collingwood coming back from, from England um, and him wanting to bat six. Um, so basically, that's him in the side and me out. Um, and Durham basically got approached by Ashley Giles and Jeff Cook came to me. I initially said no. Um, but then on reflection, I thought, you know, it's five weeks of my career. It could be the last five weeks of, of actually playing. I don't want to be sat either doing nothing or playing second team. So um, I actually went and really enjoyed my, my sort of couple of months. So it was, you know, a great way to finish the, the season. And, you know, I didn't know at the time, uh, obviously, my career at Lords. You say you, you finished with a Lords final. I know you didn't win, but is that the best, almost the best way to go out? Yeah, I guess we didn't lose either. <laughs> it was one of those um, stupid tide affairs and we lost on on less wickets. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was, it was before the super overs and 
you know, if I could have picked anywhere to finish my 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 cricketing career, it would obviously have been Lords. Um, you know, either Derbyshire or Somerset. Not many people have picked Derby. I wouldn't have thought, but um, you know, for me, it's obviously a, a special place as well. Does it still feel special now when you when you go back umpiring at, at Derby and Somerset? Does it still, you know, is it still fond memories for you? Yeah, I mean, it's changed an awful lot over the last, um, I'd say, crikey, 20 years now. Um, you know, and you still smile to yourself about, you know, things that you used to do on the race course and, you know, pre-season training that sends shivers down your spine. Um, so, yeah, there, there's certain things that obviously there's a few people still there. You know, Henry on the gate still there and, you know, there's a couple of other people still about. So, you know, it's still... Uh, a place I like to go back to, um, but equally it's, you know, I guess it isn't as special as um, perhaps Somerset is to me now. Was it, you say you did your, your coaching badges beforehand and and you started doing that umpiring, was it always going to be coaching or umpiring for you? Yeah, I wanted to obviously stay in cricket. Um, obviously left school after uh, trying to complete my A-levels um, miserably, as in, I managed to, to get a contract in the February, I think, before the, the summer. So it was, you know, I always knew I was going to, or midsummer, I always knew I was going to be playing cricket um, and then going on to the books for Derbyshire that then, you know, sort of studying went out the window, really. I never wanted to go to university. Um, and, you know, I thought, well, if I can earn some money playing cricket, you know, that's what I, I wanted to do. So, um whether it was coaching or, you know, playing, it was, you know, something I always wanted to, to sort of do from a very early age. What about the umpiring after? Was that always something that had, you know, been been in the back of your mind <clears throat> for your sort of career post-cricket? Yeah, I'd say coaching wasn't for me. And, you know, I started talking to all the umpires, not necessarily getting on their good side, you know, towards the end of my career at Durham, but pick their minds, you know, talk to them at Squelleg you know, chat to them about stuff, you know, when I'm bowling. Um, and it really interested me. And, you know, people said, oh, I would never have picked you to be an umpire because you used eight field. And I said, well, you know, umpiring's completely different kettle of fish. You don't have to chase balls. It's, you know, you're in the field all the time. But as long as you mentally set yourself that you turn up to the ground, you know what you, your job is, you're your own boss. And for me, I, I really enjoy that. And, um you know, you've got the best view from 22 yards as well. How do you go from, you know, playing to becoming a first-class umpire? What's kind of the process that you go through? Um, I think it's obviously standing in league games and a, seeing if you enjoy it because, there's, you know, it's a long day. You've got to be able to stand on your feet and people say, you just stood out there, it's dead easy. I can, I can tell people it really isn't that easy. Um, and you know your back hurts your feet hurts you've got to concentrate for lots of hours on end and I guess for me it's using my switching on and switching off mentality when I played that you can actually concentrate between deliveries and turn off at the right times but know crucially when the, the heat is on that you're doing your job properly um, so yeah for me umpiring was always something that I was looking to get into rather than anything outside of cricket or um, you know academically and you're obviously you you played for a many number of years. How much of an advantage does that give you when you're umpiring? Do do players treat you differently because they know you played at the highest level? 
Uh, it's an interesting one now because I think when I was doing second team cricket more uh, in my early days, I think I did get more respect than mm. certainly the D-list umpire that I was standing with or the, the league umpire um, because of obviously my background and the achievements I, I actually had at cricket. Um, so they gave, gave me instant respect um, and I found it a lot easier to to manage games because of obviously being you know an ex-player and playing for many years. So um, I think it'd be a tough job to try and get into if you'd not played. And, um, you know, these guys that you, you stand with, you've just got to try and help them and tell them to be confident because if you're confident and can, you know, run a game properly, the game runs itself. It's, you know, you, you can be as vocal as you like, but actually the best umpires are not seen, they're not heard, they get on with it, they squash things before it starts and, you know, you, you just crack on with the game. Do you find it difficult when you come to umpire someone who you used to play with? Yeah, every year. Um, it's always uh, James Hildreth as well at Somerset because <laughs> he's the godfather to my daughter. So, um, you know, every time he, he comes out, uh, he, we try not to make eye contact straight away um, because normally, you know, him or Pete Trigo at Somerset, you know, me and Triggs used to be, you know, roommates at Somerset and thick as thieves. So we've got, nicknames that no one would even know existed um so you know we all have this little secret code on the field and you know it is difficult but now as I get older and players move on it, it's easier to jump by games where you, you've not necessarily played against people but they obviously know you as being a, a relatively good cricketer in the past ever that temptation to trigger James or, or Trigo just for fun no, no, it's not there. Unfortunately, it's, you know, it's a very serious role for me. And, you know, I want to go as far as I can. And although you think about it and, you know, maybe have a laugh and a joke on the field, it's, you know, for me, it doesn't matter who's at the other end. I think it's a case of making sure that you execute my job properly and, you know, you're the guardians of the game. So to give something back after, you know, something that's been very good to me. Do you, um, you talked earlier about sort of your preparation for umpiring a game. How much sort of preparation for each game do you do? Do you look at the players that you know you're going to be um, umpiring? You know, you think, oh, I've got such and such. I know he's prone to no ball, so I need to make sure I'm watching him. Or, you know, I know that, that bat, I'm going to be, you know, umpiring that batter. I know he's got a tendency to walk across. So um, LBW is more of an option. Or is it just kind of clean slate every time you turn up? I wouldn't say it's a clean slate because you obviously think about your fixtures, you know, beforehand. Um, and obviously if there's any past uh, umpires that have had issues, say maybe discipline in the previous game, um, you might find that they're absolutely good as gold the next game because they've obviously had a wrap on the knuckles. Um, but there's obviously guys that, you know, you look down the team sheet and you see Graham Wagg or Steve Kirby or, you know, the guys that, you know, are prone to, to having a bit of a, a pop at people on the field. Um, and it's a case of thinking about what if and how can I stop this happening before it starts. And, you know, it's basically whether you have a word with them during the game very early on, just to say, you know, got my eye on you sort of thing. But, you know, I think, again, umpires talk and, you know, we're there to help each other out. So I wouldn't ever say it's a clean slate when you turn up to a game because, like I say, there's always those what if moments and, you know, you're obviously always preparing for them if, if they do come along. Is there much kind of, you know, you said earlier about sort of preparation. Is it 
physical preparation as well meant do you do uh, and you know like eyesight and things like that are the things that you do to strengthen your eyesight and, and concentration or is it and is that prescribed to you is there much help support uh we obviously get tested each year from the ecb the eyesight and you know it's it's uh quite a serious thing in the sense that we have uh earring tests as well and um all the sort of reactionary um tests we got to leeds becky university and it's i wouldn't say it's a thorough examination but it's uh you know certainly a stepping stone in the right direction for health and fitness um but i guess they just want to check bloods and make sure that we're you know physically okay to stand for seven or eight hours but other than that some people you know do their own thing um during the summer it's difficult because we are a lot uh, away a lot um and obviously the games that we stand it is quite physically demanding um contrary to what people may think and um you know it's just a case of keeping on top of things and you know you, you use your cricket brain as well to get you through because sometimes you're physically tired but you can still be mentally strong and certainly if the weather you know normally plays its part in the summer when it's it's really hot so you know there's ways of coping with things and um generally of find the umpires looking after themselves ask, yeah um games that you stood in when you've used dr when drs has been in play does that affect how you umpire is it do you feel <coughs> supportive or is it that nagging doubt in the back of your head that you don't want to get it wrong because it can be proved um well for one we don't use drs so it's only the international umpires that use drs um the only thing we use is hawkeye for lbws yeah. and stumping so there's no player review uh, domestic level at the moment and whether or not they bring that in over the next few years it's all about cost and obviously finance to to put all the cameras in place um so for me i quite like it because it can vindicate a decision that you think is quite tight that you get right um and equally it can you know as long as you don't get any stinkers that are shown then uh, you know you can hopefully use it to your advantage rather than you but I think all what what we all want in cricket is to get the right decisions and you know make sure that we don't uh, stuff the game up with our our decisions you mentioned there about getting a tight decision right when you've got that tight decision right and you know you've got it right does that give you the same kind of buzz as taking a wicket or you know a, a big score yeah I, I guess in some ways it does because like I say, we want to give back to the game in, in the right way. And hopefully you can, by using your knowledge and your brain and skill um, in those decision-making, that you've been there as a player and you know when it flicks the, the thigh pad down like side, you know what noise the thigh pad makes. You know what, you know, deviation off a, a glove compared to a nick. It does, it slows it down. It, you know, has a different arc and all the rest of it. So... You know, there are certain telltale signs from being a player that you can certainly utilise as an umpire. And, you know, I think that's what most of us do in general. And, um, you know, we obviously try and get the majority of our things absolutely spot on. And for me, it's hopefully getting the marginal ones right. And, you know, the stinkers don't even come into it. Do you have those games that you, you, know, you walk off the field and you go and you kind of sit there and, you know, you go, you know what, i got everything right there. That's like, if I was playing, that would be a career <coughs> highlight kind of game. Do you have those same games as an umpire when you think I was on top form, that's one that sticks in the memory. You go, you know, Derbyshire against Somerset 
2015, that I, I was perfect. Yeah, I think you do. And, and also you have those days where you come off the field thinking everything's happened at your end as well. Um, and it's surprising, you know, once the uh, match ref or the liaison officer tells you that, you know, you've made 48 decisions and your mates only made 23, you're like thinking that has all happened at my end. And, you know, for me to come off thinking I'm actually pretty pleased with my performance, then, you know, I'm, I, I can certainly say that, yeah, it gives you not a sense of relief, but knowing that you've actually done, you know, your best during that match and, you know, it's not been a straightforward game. Are there any games that you really look at? You know, like county fixtures have come out today. Um, I know you don't necessarily get your allocation straight away, but are there any that you look out for? Any, any? You said that like Taunton and, and Derby are special to you. Are there any other grounds that you really look forward to going and umpiring at? Uh, I think first and foremost, I look at uh, the teams involved and you know the standard of the match. I like to do big games and. You know, any first division matches, a decent venue is a, a bonus. Um, but everyone wants to see if they're playing at Lords or uh, even an outground, a, a trip to Scarborough, something like that, where you know it can be a, a feisty occasion. Um, I haven't done a Roses game yet, but I'd be keen to, to stand in one of those and find out, you know, just how sort of fraught it can get. Obviously, I've played against Lancashire and Yorkshire, you know, many times, but obviously it's slightly different when you're not a you know direct opposing side um but yeah i think there's all the fixtures that you sort of look to are the you know division one um lords test grounds um and just you know good places to go and umpire i think the roses matches at scarborough this year you want to uh give a nod to the the ecb and say that you'd like that one right yeah i'll put my name <laughs> down yeah um... <laughs> i'll take it on <laughs> I think I, I think I, I love the outground. I, you know, I know you used to play at Queens Park. Is it is it as nice to umpire when you get those outgrounds as as it is in, in the 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 main county bases? Is it does it have that same sort of quintessential feel for you? It's a different feeling in the sense that um, normally facilities aren't quite as as uh, I guess. To the, to the standard that, you know, you're expecting at a county or a, uh, a test ground. and But equally, it's normally a great setting, a good place to go, something different. Uh, the wicket's normally a result pitch and, you know, it gives you that um, element of, I don't know, a, a good game's going to happen. Um, so for me, I love going to the outgrounds and, um, yeah, just, just putting on a show for the public that perhaps won't get to see a game. And you mentioned earlier that you want to be involved in big games. Is is the plan for you to get on the ICC panel list? I'll go as far as I can. I've I've told my boss that um, you know whatever it takes to get accredited, I'm looking to you know progress over the next year or so. Um, and however long it takes, I'm I'm not sure, but I'm trying to follow in sort of Alex Wolf and Mike Burns' footsteps. And I think they've sort of been five years on the full list. From, from time of actually uh, getting accredited and promoted. So, um, yeah, fingers crossed it'll happen over the next three or four years, but I'm not putting a time frame on it per se as, as to pressure myself. But if it happens, brilliant. If not, then, you know, we'll, we'll keep working towards it. Is there, are there certain things that you have to do or is it purely, so is it performance-based on your reviews or do you have to take extra steps to get to that international level? <clears throat> 
there's no course as such. I think it's more um, serving your time, getting constantly good marks, and then from there, the you know the bosses generally start giving you some. You know, you've you've proven yourself as to to getting top marks each game. So for me, it's just making sure each game I've I've got a good report from it um, and doing the best you can. Because if you haven't got the big games, then you know it's the smaller games that you've got to make sure. Uh, you know, a, a run well and, um, you know, can have that positive feedback for you. Yeah, you meant we talked about you sort of like having off field highlights and those games that went really well. Are there games that you look back out from your playing career that really still stick in your mind, even though, you know, you retired eight years ago now? Are the ones that still live long in your memory? Yeah, I think there's, there's quite a few that um, you look back with sort of fond memories and, you know, obviously one of them was getting 247 against Mel County Derby. So, um, you know, that was uh, ever happened to somebody once in their career. Um, but there's obviously other days that Lords Finals and uh, I guess when we've we've sort of done well as a team. Um, so, yeah, there's plenty. And, you know, it's hopefully my mind will, uh, will stay pretty focused on on my career as, as I go forwards as well. On that, you know, do you have um, memorabilia from your playing career up around the house or is it in a box somewhere in the garage or given away or hidden away? or? <clears throat> um, I've got my, uh, the only thing I've got in the actual house, well, not in the house, downstairs toilet is my shrine. Um, I've got... Every time I got a hundred, uh, Jerry Stickley, uh, the scorer, um, did two scorecards, one for me and one for my dad. Um, so I uh, got them all framed. So I've got twenty-seven uh, hundreds all framed, um, and I've got about half a dozen in the toilet. Picture of Chesterfield and uh, a few other things. And um, the only thing I've got in the lounge is my England cap. That's the only thing I've got in the house. Um, and I must have about six cricket bags full of old England stuff, uh, which is in the garage, probably collecting mould and mice living in it and all sorts. So probably should go and check them, really. Um, not that they're worth anything, but it's just uh, more sentimental stuff. You say that, not worth anything. I always, before I interview anyone, just go on eBay and have a look at, if, if I put in Ian Blackwell Cricketer on eBay, there's people on there selling your signature, for you could have a signed postcard of yourself for eleven ninety nine, or um, just a simple plain wow. piece of card for eighteen pounds with your signature on it. So there is still value in the Ian Blackwell name. Does that really? What does that? You know, as someone who <laughs> has never had their autograph asked for, <coughs> does that sort of fill you with joy that people still will sort of? want to have that memento of you as a player or does it kind of just like you go whoa what yeah I, I guess so I think that only tells you that those two items haven't sold um <laughs> but I think that uh it, it obviously is very nice to you know to still ask for your, get your signature and even as an umpire now you you've got all these guys now that I went back to Scarborough last year um sorry obviously the year before um this terrible year and I Stood with Alex Wharf, um, Yorkshire Surrey, and some old boy came up to me and he said he'd been trying to follow me for, you know, best part of 15 years to try and get my signature. And 
for some reason or not, he'd not been able to do it. And, you know, they pull out the who's who from 2003 and, you know, get me to sign a horrific picture. Um, but yeah, the, it's still obviously nice that people remember uh, what you did and, you know, hopefully I've, I've brought some joy to those that, you know, saw me play. That that one England cap that you got that's up in the house, I I, so I, I spoke to someone and they kind of said that actually, that because they only ever played one, it was the idea of, is it better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all? Is it better to have played once for England and then never again and kind of think, oh, I wish I'd played more? Or is it would it have been better to, to not play that game and, and not have that kind of, I only ever played once? I think everybody would take the one over none. Um, you know, you get your numbers, you get the opportunity to have have that have that chance really. And um, although for me it was a shoulder injury that you know stopped any more England caps after my only one. Um, although I could have played the third one, uh, the second one was a green seamer, which Liam Plunkett uh, came in for me, and they decided then in the third game to go with an off spinner. Um, so they had a, a lefty in Monty who bowled the majority of the overs in the first test, which I played. Um, and then after that tour, I had the third shoulder up and, and that was, well, second shoulder up and that was me. I'd like to have played more, um, of course, but, uh, you know, nobody can take that away from me. And is that, would that be, you know, that, that one cap, would that be one of the, the highlights of your career, that getting that England cap? It's a weird one because I'd probably say no. <laughs> um, yes, it was a proud moment to receive my England cap, but the the five days that followed um, were pretty uh, non-existent for me. Really, I only bowled I think sixteen overs in the match and um, only batted once. I think we drew the game, so that was a highlight. Um, but it was a strange, strange part of uh, my career. Really, I think England uh, side at the time you were sort of playing for your next game rather than being or sort of felt part of a, a squad um, because there was the eight or nine very regulars. Then there was a couple of us on the on the outside all sort of vying for a couple of spots. So it was a strange uh, setup to be involved in. But obviously one back in the day, it was it was nice to actually get that chance to, to be part of it. Can I, um, I have a... A, a obsession with squad numbers and you you wore 37 sort of wh- wherever you went um did you get to pick that number or does that have any real special significance to you and what's the if it is what's the story behind 37 on Ian Blackwell's back um yes I, I got to pick it and no there's absolutely nothing behind it at, at all um I got a list of numbers sent through when I got selected um, and they just said, choose one. And I was like, well, I was looking through the numbers and there was nothing that was, you know, stood out or seemed to be, you know, of any great worth. So I just went, I'll have 37. And then since then, I, wherever I play for my club, I always, you know, asked if I could then have 37 on the back. Do you ever look at in different sports? If you're watching another sport and you see someone with 37, does that does the number pop out to you now? Yeah, it does all the time. Um, there's a guy at Watford. There's a big guy, Troy Ore. I think he's number 37. Um, Scott Borthwick, ironically, he made his uh, ODI debut and Nick 37. So 
I'm like, okay, that's a bit, uh, that's a bit weird, you know. Um, so obviously, I think if anybody of any worth, they retire the number, don't they? But you know, obviously, I think after two years, uh, the number becomes um, available again. And Scott Balfour took 37, so I don't know whether I should be proud of that or um, slightly more angry with him as an ex Durham teammate of mine. He, he, of course, only he played one test for England as well. Maybe that's the the number of spinners yeah. who only play one test match. Um, yeah, I think he was thrown to the wolves a little bit, wasn't he, in Sydney? <clears throat> he, he was out there playing grade cricket, I think, wasn't he? And they'd had that many injuries, and he'd done all right, and he was English and in Australia, and, and in you go. I think, like you say, completely thrown to the wolves. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> what, what advice would you give, Ian, to a young player starting out in their career now? Um, I think don't have any expectations. I think um, if you love playing cricket, just continue to love playing cricket. And, you know, for me, I absolutely adored cricket growing up. And, you know, when it became my job, I actually detested it quite a lot as well. Um, so for me, it's a case of keeping the love and, you know, just, just playing as, as much as you can for the enjoyment of playing with your mates. And, you know, if if you do take it seriously, then just make sure it's, you know, with a smile on your face and, you know, and done in the right way because, you know, the game has a funny way of, you know, biting you on the backside. And um, I think if, you know, I had my time again, I'd probably still do exactly the same growing up and playing as much as I could with my mates. And, um, yeah, just, just play with a smile on your face and enjoy it. You say there, you like it points you detested it has that love come back since you've stopped playing and started umpiring yeah I don't think I ever lost the love for it I don't watch as much cricket as I used to watch now um you know I think I do have a gut full of it during the summer and you know you you do tend to to think oh not another game of cricket but it, it's part of me it's you know it's in my blood and I'll always have a, a little glance at the telly if it's on but I won't religiously watch games I'm more interested in watching mates who are playing um, and, you know, having that involvement with them rather than, you know, looking back thinking, oh, I wish I was playing again because I certainly don't don't wish that unless the body was, you know, back to being 22 years old um, because, you know, taking half an hour to get your socks on in the morning, it's not a pretty sight, um, but it's sort of, you know, years of battering your body is taking its toll so, so um, yeah, for, for me, it's, you know, enjoying other people's success and, you know, just being happy for mates that are playing on telly and getting behind those guys. Do you ever have the opportunity, do you ever still play, pick up a bat and ball and even in the garden or with mate or with a, a club side or anything, or is it just, just umpiring for you now? Yeah, purely umpiring, although um, my boys are getting involved now. I've got a um, twin boy guild. They both play cricket for... Uh, Somerset development stuff and you know they're getting really into cricket now but they play about eight sports so it's pretty mental in the summer um, and I wouldn't say I've ever picked up a bat for probably three years now when I've stopped playing league cricket um, so the little one he's only eight he's just got into the development stuff as well um, so me I'm just more of a taxi now rather than you know any, anything to do with playing cricket um, and then obviously just the umpire in front is it easy, you say that you've got you know, the, the, your two youngsters playing, is it easy to watch as dad or does coach Ian kick in? I think I'm very fortunate that I, I don't say a word. Um, 
even the coaches that are there don't want them to feel, you know, not necessarily threatened, but feel as if they're not doing the right thing for the kids because, you know, I want the kids, I want to be able to drop the kids off and let them just be coached. Uh, and I do not meddle at all. I've been there and I've seen it when, you know, the, the dad just gets too too involved and that's not me. I just, you know, certainly don't want to embarrass them and, you know, sort of say, well, you can't do that because I know best. It's, you know, at that age, I don't know best, you know, I, I let them do the coaching and, you know, I just enjoy watching them play. And then a question, what advice would you give to a player sort of coming to the end of their career? You know, you think back to when you were there and you'd had that shoulder operation and last few few years of your, your contract, what, if you could speak to, to that person, what, what would you say to them as advice? I think something I failed to do was to be get qualified in the winter uh, for certain things and nothing really interested me outside of cricket. So whether it's accountancy, financial advising, uh, the property market, um, something where I could have maybe got a uh, some form of degree or uh, I've just never been academically minded and you know, I can't sit still for, you know, certainly not in a classroom for hours on end. Um, so for me, it was a, you know, umpiring and to stay as, as sort of a player, six months on, six months off, having that similar lifestyle that I've been, that's been ingrained into me. Um, but for any youngster coming up, I think I was fortunate because I managed to play for so long. Uh, other guys aren't, aren't so fortunate. So if they can do something alongside cricket as they're playing, have that something to fall back on which I never had and you know if, if things do go slightly awry then you've always got that something to to actually do when you finish playing. You say that six months on six months off do you, is there ever that opportunity like when you're playing to go and umpire in Australia or the southern hemisphere in the winter to to hone your skills or is it very much that the English summer's your domain? Uh, well, we've signed 12-month contracts now, so anything we do do outside of um, the summer months, we, we have to get okayed by the ECB, regardless of whatever it is. Um, and if it is cricket, we'd need to be okayed for sure. Um, obviously, what's happened with COVID, there's there's no chance of travelling and, and doing that at the moment. Um, but, you know, I think the majority of the guy, I think um, Steve O'Shaughnessy goes to Australia and he does some uh, great cricket out there. Um and it is just a case of if you can travel, then why not? But, you know, with three kids and, a you know, an ex-wife to sort of be, be around <laughs> for, for them, it, it's difficult to then say, well, I'm going off on par for two months somewhere. So um, I'm away enough in the summer and, you know, trying to get that sort of through. I just wouldn't do it at the moment unless it was something, you know, for ICC. And then sort of last question for me, really, what, what would you say was the secret to a, a happy retirement from playing cricket? Uh, definitely to have a focus. Um, all of a sudden, you go from having your life being organised because as a, as a cricketer, you've got hotels, you've got buses, you've got games, you've got schedules, you've got fixtures. You know, your life is planned. Um, you don't do a lot. You might have a game of golf. You might spend time with the family. Um, and, you know, it's a really strange situation not having somewhere to go to then have a, a net or hit balls or, um, you know, go for coffee with three mates that, you know, you play with, um, although that still can happen. But when 
and their schedule comes out and they're then away, if you're around the whole time, it becomes then very difficult and you can become quite detached very quickly from guys that you've been living in each other's pockets from. So um, I think I was fortunate that I did go straight into cricket, um, but financially it was tough. I spent five years on the reserve list pretty much trying to get to where I am now and, you know, the money isn't there. So fortunately I obviously had a career where I could have something backed up and um, to finance it. But other than that, I think you've, you've got to have a focus and, you know, to be able to come out and do something pretty much immediately. So, you know, you've got that focus in life. I'm always impressed when a player becomes an umpire. The knowledge and understanding they have of the game helps them so much. And it's no accident that Ian has progressed as he has and is so well respected in the field of umpiring. I wouldn't be surprised at all if we saw him on the international stage before long. Next time on the Back to the Pavilion podcast, we may not be able to cross the Severn Bridge into Wales physically at the moment, but join me as we welcome a Glamorgan legend back to the Pavilion. His career spanned 19 years, 605 games, and has more accolades, records and distinguishments than I care to mention. So join me next time as we welcome Mark Wallace back to the Pavilion. That's all from me today, but do get in touch. I do love to hear from you all. Stay safe, be kind to yourself and others. Bye-bye for now.